This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Let them take care of dinner with their ready-to-heat meals. And in fact, they're introducing two new meals that have been added to the menu, a poke bowl dinner and a bistro sandwich dinner. Uh, The poke bowl dinner comes with two types of poke, rice and toppings to create your own bowls. The bistro sandwich is a ham and gruyere and caprice sandwiches, uh, as well as sides. You can pair these with a bottle of rosé on your patio. It's it's been fairly nice lately. Uh, If you order by noon, you can have same-day curbside pickup between 3 and 7 o'clock. Meanwhile, one of the things we love most about Zupans is that they're constantly bringing in new things. That includes the spring produce. Yes, it is springtime. Uh, local produce coming in just arrived in the store. Local asparagus from Washington and organic green garlic and ramps. And ooh, this is the one I'm most excited about. Nola's Donuts. Get a taste of Nola's brand new donut, a classic yeast raised donut featuring vanilla and chocolate glaze, maple bars, and donut holes. Sounds so good, and I'm putting that on my list for this weekend. Speaking of which, on your next visit, don't forget they have adjusted hours so that employees can be uh, better cleaning and restocking the shelves. I would also throw out a reminder that in this environment, be sure to keep your shopping to a minimum. Go in, do your shopping, get out. Not time for browsing. Uh, And don't forget to thank the employees that are there to assist you. Obviously, they're kind of right there out there and still in the public working amongst all of us doing their best. And we appreciate it. So uh, get store hours. Find the one nearest you, which, of course, is on McAdam, West Burnside, Lake Oswego, and always Zupans.com. Well, good day, everyone. This is Chris Angelus, and this is Right at the Fork, the uh, podcast focusing on the Portland food scene since 2014. We're now going to present to you episode number 244. That really doesn't cover our entire archives because we did a lot of sound bites um, along the way that uh, talked about various lists and so forth, but it is our 244th interview, the last 10 of which we've been conducting as the Right in the Moment series. Uh, So we've been talking to folks in the Portland food world, mostly business owners and restaurant owners, about um, their responses to the coronavirus, what they've been doing with their businesses, and um, what they see moving forward. Of course, as time has gone on, and we're a little over a month into this now, um, people have learned more about aid that is available to them, how that's working, whether it's really going to have an impact and what the, um, the food world in Portland and elsewhere will look like moving forward. So we invite you to listen back into our archives of the 243 other episodes that exist and, of course, uh, nine others that have taken place in the last month that are pretty interesting. Um, and, and you can hear the difference in tone over time. So we started out with John Gorham and uh, Craig Peterson of Ringside Steakhouse. And we've talked to Mike Zupan and we've talked to Craig Gerard at Stone Soup. Um, we also talked to Michael Madigan, then again to Renee Gorham about their Feed It Forward PDX 
program, Erica Palmer, who's done a lot of advocating on behalf of restaurants. So go back and listen to those. Oh, also Nate Snell of Pips, who sprouted a new business out of the uh, coronavirus closing that they had to um, undergo with Pips Original. So sorry if I missed one or two of those previous nine episodes. I don't think I did, actually. So please go back and listen to those. You're not hearing, uh, other than for some of the commercials and the intros, uh, a little bit of the intro, you're not hearing my co-host, Court Johnson. But I thought I'd leave a little opening here for Court to talk about what his life might have been like, or just to uh, uh, interject anything he'd like to, because he and I normally are in a studio recording these intros, and we don't get to do that now, and I miss that, and I'm looking forward to the day when we get back in the studio um, to record the podcast in its uh, usual fashion. So, Court... Here's your opening. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's been a strange couple of weeks. Um, We've learned a lot, I think. We've learned how to do a podcast and not actually go into a studio. Um, There's obviously some things we can uh, work on and and work to perfect on this, but uh, we've been able to pull it off. So um, that's been a good learning experience. That's me looking for the positive sides of things. And I I would assume this is probably happening everywhere. I'm I'm sure there's going to be a lot of businesses that have uh, sent their employees home. Um, and I've realized, oh, maybe we don't even need an office space. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that kind of all pans out. I know my wife's company is going through that. Um, she works from home all the time. They're based in a different state and they're asking themselves that question is, do we actually need a physical, um, space because they're all based in the virtual world where an office doesn't really matter, but maybe it does. I mean, it's nice to see people, right? It would be nice to see you, Chris. Um, I'm here in uh, Washington County, Bull Mountain area. I've been uh, self-quarantining with my uh, my wife, as I mentioned, our two daughters who are now uh, remote learning, um, which has been an experience. We're all kind of on top of each other. Fortunately, we have enough rooms in the house. We can kind of separate and take Zoom calls and do whatnot. And then I've been broadcasting my show from various places in my house, most often in my dining room because... I've got a good view out the front. There's lots of light and nobody bugs me. So anyway, uh, thanks for checking in, Chris. Well, thank you, Court. I found that exceptionally thrilling, except for the fact that I haven't actually heard it yet. I have to uh, listen to the podcast to hear what you had to say. But uh, I do miss getting together and I hope we can do it soon. Um, So we've been doing our respective functions from our homes uh, throughout the last uh, five or six weeks or so, and uh, we expect to do it for a little while longer. So that being said, this episode, we talk with Nick A. Zukin of Mi Mera Mole, and also the recently closed and sadly closed Zappa Pizza, which I pronounce Zappa, to, um, to start out in the podcast and uh, later realized that all the years of listening to Frank probably influenced me in that regard. But Nick had a wonderful restaurant, new restaurant on board. It didn't stay open long, um, and he's a very humble man. Uh, he talks very frankly about how much money he lost with that, and then that was a month before the coronavirus hit, and now he's dealing with um, more challenges at Mi Mera Mole, and he's a very bright guy, um, has owned also on Kenny and Zooks, 
um, is not an owner of that any longer. Um, but uh, his food is fantastic. He does a lot of research before he opens up a restaurant. Obviously, with Zappa Pizza, he did not do. He did a lot of food research, but hadn't necessarily tested the market in terms of the concept. And he talks about that here on this podcast. Um, and it, this is one of the longer uh, episodes from the right at the moment series because Nick's a pretty talkative guy and we had lots of lots to talk about including what happened to Zappa Pizza and what's going now on now with me Maramole and just generally speaking on what Nick sees as the prognosis for restaurants moving forward so Nick's one of my favorite people to speak with um, you know I used to refer to him on Facebook as a contrarian because if you said anything, he would chime in somehow with some excellent support with the opposite uh, f uh, frame of mind. And uh, I never had a comeback for it. I wasn't going to spend the time. But uh, he is one of the nicest guys and certainly one of the most charitable, benevolent people I've ever met. So following him on Facebook, I've seen lots that he has done for people in need and that he puts um, others in front of himself. So uh, this is a really interesting interview. I suggest you stick with it for, I think it's about an hour, the full hour, with Nick Zukin. So Nick, let's talk a little bit um, about, you've had, you've had a, about the roughest year I can imagine, because... <laughs> <laughs> right? So if, if Zappa Pizza wasn't enough for you, then this, you know, if, so, if someone would have told you months ago that, oh, don't worry, this is going to probably be the, it, I don't know if it's, I, one, one could say it'd be the easy thing, but don't worry, there's more coming down the pike. What would you have thought? Yeah, well, I mean, I've told the story to enough people now, it's probably not a big deal for me to tell it uh, publicly, but about uh, two years ago, I went to my wife and I was like, hey, look, you know, our, we've got lots of equity in our house. You know, we're probably at peak market in Portland for housing prices. You know, you've got a, a modest 401k. Um, I've got the restaurant and a little bit of money saved up that I was thinking of using for a new project. But, you know, we could just uh, uh, sell the restaurant, move to Mexico and, you know, be semi-retired. And she's like, oh, I think I still want to stay in Portland, you know, maybe, you know, in a couple of years, that sort of thing. And so I was like, okay. And so I... Um, <laughs> I didn't know I, this story. This is... Yeah. This is so that's when I kind of sat down or, uh, or put myself on the road of Zappa Pizza. And so I had most of the money um, saved up to do that. You know, I... Since uh, Mimiramoli opened, I've only paid myself $20,000 a year. Um, the rest has either gone into, you know, improvements for the restaurant. You know, originally I built out the second restaurant, mostly on uh, savings. Um, and then, you know, I've tried to stay ahead of uh, uh, market rate, you know, been able to pay my employees, um, you know, more than uh, they would get elsewhere. Um you know, things like that. And so I've been putting mostly into the restaurant and just taking what was necessary for me to be able to pay our mortgage at home and, you know, our bills and whatever. Um, well, 20000 doesn't go very far, though. So... No. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but I mean, um, you know, I do other things, obviously, like, you know, uh, you know, you, you use your gas card or whatever, but, you know, um, but basically that's what I've been paying myself every year. Um, you know, just putting it all back into the business and, you know, with the idea of, you know, well, one day I'll have this asset or I can, you know, uh, you know, I will build up this thing that can pay for itself and I can just, you know, uh, sit back and not have to work so hard or, or sell it to the, um, employees or something like that, you know? Um, and, and, you know, and I'd always have these ideas about maybe doing another business, but, um, I was ready to be done. I was ready to go to Mexico and work on my book. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. And instead I ended up, uh, you know, taking that money that was in the bank and putting it towards, uh, Zappa pizza. And then, um, you know, I ended up taking out a loan on my house too because uh, I decided I wanted to, you know, make the interior a little bit nicer and and spend some money on this and that, and uh, and not to mention the um, uh, contractor went like nine months over, and you know there was a whole bunch of work, extra work that had to be done with like asbestos, and so I ended up spending like at least three hundred thousand dollars on the build out, and then you know. Uh, we basically lost another hundred thousand dollars while we were open. So I ended up losing on Zappa pizza, $400,000. And I mean, you know, that, uh, that was, you know, hard for me to take. And it was, you know, it took me a little while to kind of become resigned to that. Um, Hey, a lot of people, a lot of people, when they lose $400, it's very hard for them to take. So that's all, that's a big hit. Nick and uh, I didn't realize well, it was that yeah. big. I didn't realize it was that big. Well, and, and the difference is that you know, for me, it felt like I was, uh, you know, trying to do things right. You know, you save up money, you don't take out loans. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't putting anybody else at risk. You know, with Kenny and Zooks, I always felt bad um, for the other investors. You know, all these investors that were in there when we weren't making money. I didn't want to be in that position again where. Um, I felt like, you know, someone else's, uh, nest egg was, uh, on me. And, and so I've never taken investors for Mimiramole, really. I had a, I had a small investor once and I paid him back plus interest, you know, when I opened up the new one. But, um, but basically I did it myself, you know, I didn't want to be in that position again. And, um, and, you know, you feel like you're doing it right. You know, a lot of restaurants, what they do is they, you know, most restaurant investors are, you know, some sort of angel investor or just someone who does it because they've got, you know, some extra cash and they want to feel like, you know, it's cool to own a restaurant and that sort of thing. I mean, I don't really know those type of people, but I mean, that's what most of these, you know, upscale restaurants are they're not real investments i mean most people would be better off putting their money into something else they want to be a part of the restaurant scene they want to go to the restaurant with their friends and you know brag about it or or you know whatever or they just love the food and it's kind of a um, way for them to uh be a patron you know in the same way that you might be for some painter in the 16th century (laughs) but um but, you know, I've never really done that sort of thing, and uh, at least since Kenny and Zooks. And I, I didn't, I don't like the feeling of it. I don't like having, you know, I would never let my friends invest in anything I do. I don't want to, you know, get, have that get in between me and them, um, you know, have this, you know, have this 
money that would uh, get between our friendship or have to worry that I would have to tell them one day, sorry, I lost all your money. You know, if I'm going to lose the money, it's going to be my own money. You know, I'm, I'm making these uh, decisions. I want the risk to be my risk, not someone else's risk. But, you know, most restaurants don't run that way. They put a lot, they take out loans and they get a lot of investors um, who have cash. But, um, you know, smaller restaurants are more like, me where it's you know it's it's basically your nest egg and it's it's your it's it's the money that you have it's your life savings and that's basically what this was was me slowly building up money and i put that into zappa pizza hoping that i could build something that could turn into you know three or four zappa pizzas and be you know that um that thing that allows me to retire because, um, you know, most restaurants, it's hard to ever retire. Right. Um, I've been lucky that my wife has had a steady um, corporate job for a long time. And so that pays our bills and allows me to be a little riskier. But, you know, a lot of people aren't in that uh, position. Um, yeah, but anyways, that's a lot of risk, though, the 400000 Did you think that that was well, when you went into it? What were the odds that you thought that wasn't going to work out? Uh, I thought the odds were really low that I would fail, fail. Um, I thought, you know, it's always kind of 50-50 whether you'll take off. But I thought, I looked at um, the numbers we did for Mira Mole. I mean, even when we first opened, like $1,500 was a minimum day for us. And so I ran the numbers on Zappa Pizza. And even though the the rent was significantly higher than it was at Mira Mole, I felt like, um, we could break even if even if we did only fifteen hundred dollars a day, um, and we'd probably do a little bit more than that. I thought that was like about as low as we could go because that's you know was a Mimaramole Monday um, in October or, or January sort of day, even when it first opened. And I, and I thought the location was a little better, at least uh, more visible straight across the street from. Um, big pink so i thought i thought that was kind of the bare minimum we might kind of lose money we might break even eventually but i didn't think we'd be losing you know twenty thousand dollars a month which is where we were um so uh um i didn't i didn't really think what happened was a was a possibility but um obviously that was you know my mistake and i've tried to own up to the, you know, the mistakes that I've made on Zappa Pizza and the errors and judgment that I had, um, you know, which were a lot and it cost me a decent amount and it cost, you know, my employees, uh, uh, their jobs and what opportunity. Kind, what kind of research had you done on that concept? Because it was very different and, you know, people, I thought it was fantastic, but it was not uh, something that people were necessarily they weren't really familiar with it and so i think yeah and i think that was part of it um you know i think um i think that was part of it in the sense that um you know we definitely had people who like uh you know you know we're friends with the people over at society hotel and they'd recommend us all the time they liked the food they'd come in all the time and eat it and they would and when their customers would hear about like mm, Mexican pizza, yeah, no. And a lot of times when they would come over, they'd go back and they'd go, oh, man, that was the best ever. I didn't expect it to be so good. Um, and so there was definitely that. But I think a lot of it was just that it was pizza in general. I don't think I realized how um, 
much pizza is a dinner, not lunch thing for people, especially business lunch. I think, you know, a lot of people think of it as um, too heavy for lunch. And I don't think I realized that. I thought, like, you know, that one of the reasons why I liked doing the Mexican food was that um, one of the things I hated at Kenny and Zook's was we were so lunch and not dinner. Like, people don't go out for sandwiches for dinner. Um, so we are very much a lunch place, and getting dessert, dinner business was always very difficult. And so after that, I didn't want to ever be in the position of having a restaurant that was out of balance, where it was only lunch or only dinner. Um, and so I thought pizza, one of the nice things about that would be that it would be pretty balanced between lunch and dinner. But I think I was wrong. I think there's a lot of people who just go get a slice, and it's almost more of a snack than a lunch, And um, but, but don't really want to go out for lunch for pizza that much. And so in that sense, we would have been better off in a neighborhood than downtown because downtown – uh, it's really about lunch business first. And, you know, Mimaramoli has always been a lunch first place. We get, uh, okay dinner business now, or, well, not now, but, you know, uh, uh, prior to COVID, we got okay dinner business, um, and a lot of like margarita sales, a lot of happy hour, but I mean, it was lunch first. And, um, and with, uh, the pizza, there was, it, it really, even though lunch was our busier time, um, it wasn't when people wanted to come in. And so the people who did want to come in, who had heard about us, they were like, ah, but I don't want to go downtown, you know. Right. I found, I found that to be a tough location. We went a couple of times. And I think, yeah, and during the day, had I wanted pizza, and I'm, I'm yeah, I agree. I'm a slicer, too person if i'm having it for lunch and i like it but i can't i just couldn't imagine ordering a full pizza uh for lunch we sold slices but i mean you know you'd have a lot of people come in for one slice at lunch right and you know so if you have a if you have a hundred people coming in spending five dollars as opposed to spending ten dollars it makes a huge difference to your bottom line right so but at at night it was a tough go for you know just expecting people to go into that neighborhood at nighttime not not the best experience well and i think i think um yeah and i mean mimar moly did did totally fine i mean you know on a friday night it'd be slammed on a saturday night it'd be slammed and we got kind of busy on friday nights there i think uh one of the things that surprised me though is i thought that uh we would be of more interest for uh, the various events down there, for the people who are going to ground control, for the people who are going to um, the different concert venues. Um, but uh, we'd have people going to Roseland shows that were like lined up around us and not coming in except for to use the bathroom. Um, where at least at Mimero, um, you know, as long as it was a crowd older than 30, uh, we'd get absolutely slammed. You know, I mean, obviously the the you know high school crowd is just going to come in and use the bathroom, maybe buy a soda. But um, but at uh, Zappa Pizza, I don't know if it was because there wasn't enough branding or um, something else about the place, but people weren't um, coming in, even if they were going to a show. Um, we wouldn't really get any busier when there was a you know a sold out show next door, which uh, surprised me as well. So there's a bunch of surprises like that. Um, I'm sure if we would have opened a, um, 
you know, 800,000 square foot place in a neighborhood, we'd still be open today, you know, even with COVID. Um, but, uh, and it would have saved me a lot of money because I would have spent a lot less on the build out, you know, would have spent a lot less on rent and, you know, and so on. So I could have made a lot of different choices about that. But, um, yeah. How, how, how long did you carry it out in hindsight? How long uh, prior to your actual closing do you now wish you had closed? Obviously, I guess the answer is you wish you never would have opened. But yeah, yeah, I never wish you never would have opened. Well, I mean, so, so there's a few different things. I mean, um, we're getting kind of far afield from my story, but, uh, I'll get back to it in a minute. But the, uh, but on Zappa Pizza, the, um, so what happened was I wanted to open in spring, um, which is way better to open in spring for that location. Um, you know, all the tourists come in. So the idea was you open in spring, takes a little while for the word to get around for your place, but you have tourists coming in in the summer. So they're going to fill in some of those spots so you can stay busy enough. And then when the tourists go home, by then people have heard of you and they start coming in at lunch and then you can make it through, um, the slower winter because you've built up name recognition and then you go back into the next spring and it starts to snowball onto itself. But, um, so we started, we closed in, I think August and then, um, it took longer than I expected for the, uh, contractor to get going and get permits. Um, and you know, in hindsight, a lot of that was probably the contractor's fault. Um, but I didn't realize it then. And we had three and a half months, I think, of free rent um, going in. So I figured that we'd have to pay a couple months of rent. But, you know, I was hoping we'd get – originally the uh, contractor told me that we could get it done by, like, January or February. Um, and then it just kept on moving back and back. Then we found um, asbestos and rot in the floors. And so that was an extra three months. Plus, I had to argue with our original landlord about who should have to pay for it. And that took like a month just to argue that out. And ultimately, the landlord paid for it, um, as was necessary under the lease. And so then you're pushing out more and more. And then the contractor just was dragging their feet like crazy. It, uh, I mean, there were weeks when there were no subcontractors in there, which is absolutely insane. And so... Um, you know, we ended up not opening until uh, September, um, ironically on September 11th. But, um, you know, that was an extra six or seven months of rent. So so right there, I mean, you're looking at, uh, you know, $70,000, $60,000 worth of rent. And so, you know, assume that everything else being equal, but I had that sixty or $70,000 in my pocket, um, come the day that I decide, oh, we're obviously not going to make it. Because what really did it with Zappa Pizza was, you know, we got a little bit of a bump from the Willamette Week article, although probably less bump than I've ever gotten from a such a positive review before. Um, and it's like, okay, well, we got some bump, you know, maybe we'll move up everything. And then come January and February, it goes down, goes down. Then we get a really positive article or review from um, Oregonian, and there's absolutely no bump. In fact, business went down. And and at that point, I'm like, um, I was hoping business would go up so we could make payroll. I'm going to have to, um, you know, put the next payroll on my credit card, and I might have to put me Meryl Moley's next payroll on my credit card as well. Um, this has got to be the last payroll because I can't do this anymore. I mean, I I mean, I have no choices here. We're out of money, right. and so um, so that's when I made the decision and told the managers and like. 
day after that, we told all the employees, it's like, this is going to be, you know, the Saturday's last day. Oh, that must have been so hard for you. You put your, you put, that was a long go. To, you went down to Mexico to do some research on that Mexican pizza concept, and you, you had your heart in there for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have my heart in it in the same way that I had me Miramola. I mean, it was more of a fun concept, but, you know, I um, didn't expect it to fail so uh, spectacularly. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, you know, basically put everything I owned, uh, you know, into, you know, I might as well just gone to Vegas and put it all on red, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, um, so, and, but if, but if come February... And one of the other kind of weird things is we closed on February 8th. If we had stayed open to February 15th, uh, we would have been able to get um, COVID-19 uh, funding right now. So, oh, God. <laughs> so we missed it by one week. Oh. But, um, the, uh, but yeah, but if I had had that sixty or $70,000 still at that point, um, you know, from the uh, – from basically the contractor screwing us over – um, I would have probably pivoted into something else, you know, something that would for sure, you know, uh, be able to break even like hamburgers or something like that. Right. And so, um, and so that's the other thing. It's like, because it took so long, because we we're out of cash, I couldn't even save the restaurant, you know, um, cause I had no money left. I would have had to, uh, you know, put another hundred thousand dollars on my house or something. Um, and at that point it's, you know, <laughs> I might be, you know, dead in my sleep, uh, for my wife, uh, strangling me if I had done that. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that's, I mean, there's just, there's a lot that, uh, happened. I mean, at this point, you know, you kind of look back and you go, well, even if I hadn't failed, you know, the way I did, COVID probably would have killed it anyway. Um, you know, maybe not if I'd done everything right from the beginning, but, you know, certainly if I had like, taken out a loan and tried to, you know, make it another couple months to see if it'd get through summer or something, right. it would have died for sure. Right. So it's, it's definitely good that I didn't, uh, try to continue past that. But, so but let's talk, was, let's, let's talk about COVID and what it's done to me, Miramole, cause you're, uh, well, what I was going to say though, to finish my story from earlier was just that, um, so the other thing, so, so all that happened was Zappa pizza. I basically lost $400,000 on Zappa Pizza, uh, much of which is, you know, uh, uh, mortgage on my house now, um, which means that, you know, I don't have the equity that I had, even if my house was worth as much money as it was, which it's obviously not anymore. Right. But, um, but I had also had an agreement with um, uh, my managers, Pablo and Caleb. Uh, Pablo is Caleb's dad to sell them uh, Mimera Mole. Um, for uh um about a half million dollars um which is uh actually a pretty good price for what our our revenue there was and um and we had pretty much gone through the motions of doing that and and then covid came along so for the last nine years i've been paying myself twenty thousand dollars a year and somehow i still 
well, never having it in the bank lost a million dollars this year is how I kind of think about it, wow. which is just kind of crazy. It's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, the only good thing about it is, you know, I never actually had the million dollars, so it's not like I lost it in that sense, but it'd be like if you were, uh, you went to Vegas and you're up a million dollars and then you decided to keep betting and suddenly you're, uh, uh, out of money or something. Yeah. And, uh, that's kind of how it, uh, feels. It's like, I was, I was right there. I was just an inch from being able to, uh, you know, move to Mexico, work on my book, you know, do all the things I've been dreaming about doing. And now it's all, you know, falling apart. I mean, obviously there's people who are way worse off than me and I'm not trying to, you know, um, whine and go, woe is me. I mean, no, you, you know, don't sound like you're whining at all. I think you're taking it very well. And you know, the other, well, I have a little bit more time than most people to, to adjust to COVID-19 only because, um, I was one of the people back in February who was saying, uh, you know, this is exactly what has happened is what's going to happen. Um, whereas a lot of people I think were in denial. Um, and so, you know, I was freaking out, um, you know, a month ago, but now I'm kind of resigned to what's going on. So, yeah. And you were also, yeah. So you, if everything had worked okay, worked out, okay, you'd be in Mexico with a half million dollars. But you were even clo- you were even close enough to have salvaged, you know, to if you sold me Marimole, to at least even up the Zappa Pizza problem, and well, that, even well, that, that didn't. Idea. Yeah, jeez, yeah, I can't. Oh, I, I, I'm so sorry, Nick. That's just awful. So. Oh, let's talk about what you have to look forward to now. And I know one of the reasons... The thing is, it it could be, even with that, it could be a lot worse. I mean, at least my wife, you know, has a job she hasn't been laid off from. And uh, once we refinance our house, she'll be able to pay our bills, at least. Um, You know, because I'm not going to be able to pay myself for a while. But, um, uh, but man, I just keep thinking about these people. Because I've talked to a lot of restaurant owners, you know, lately. And there's some people who it's like... You know, the wife owns a restaurant and the husband owns a coffee shop. And you just got to be thinking, oh, my Lord. It's like, uh, you know, you guys are super fucked. Yeah, yeah, we're not hearing it yet. We we know it's coming, but there are, you know, it sort of when this started happening, I started thinking about the bigger they are, the harder it's going to be or the more they have. There's more at risk. So, um so you've had you've had some experience with the PPP loans and very frustrating experiences so far. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that have seen a lot of anything. Uh, I've I've heard of a, a couple of loans being financed or funded, and I've heard just started to hear people getting their stimulus checks. I personally haven't seen a thing. I've barely gotten an email back on anything. So I'm just hoping upon hope. Uh, but I know, like you, it's easy for me, not easy, but I can see that I don't, you know, I don't have it. I don't have employees. I don't have a payroll to hit. So it's not that hard for me compared to a lot of people out there. It's, it's rough go. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, some people forget that, uh, as, um, business owners, we don't have a safety net other than bankruptcy really um you know i'm not um you know i can't get unemployment and um 
and what's what kind of stinks is if you have your 2019 taxes done, you can use those for the stimulus check. But otherwise, you have to go to 2018. And 2018, I show uh, you know too much money um, to get a stimulus check. But 2019, you know, even with my wife's income, we're going to show a negative income because we lost so much money. So uh, I'm not, I can't get the uh, stimulus check either. So I have no clue what that's like right now. Yeah, but it's not. But, um, it's, that's not compared to uh, $400,000. No, it's no, not, no. It's not, it's not a lot, but hopefully, maybe I, you know, it we're would, reading. It would it. help us pay a mortgage, though. Right, and, and I'm reading that, you know, I don't believe anything, but we're starting to read that some legislation is out there to provide two thousand a month in stimulus payments. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of uh, things out there. It'll be interesting to see what actually comes out. I mean, I, you know, as soon as the details of the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP loans as part of the CARES Act um, came out, I was pretty critical of them because there was too many obvious uh, um, problems with it. I mean, I was getting a lot of um, pushback from other restaurant owners that were like, hey, why don't you just shut up and be grateful? I mean, literally telling me to shut up and be grateful that they're giving us something. I'm like, uh, but... You know, the way I explained it to someone else today was, uh, you know, I understand that they want to see that the glass is half full, but I'm trying to show them there's actually poison in that half a glass. Yeah. So, and, and that's uh, that's a bit where it was. I mean, um, you know, the uh, I mean, first of all, in the details, um, you know, it was obvious that chains were going to be first in line. And I was trying to explain this to a lot of friends. It's like, hey, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. They, the first people they will give these loans to are all these chains with big accounts and lots of money and lots of capital. I mean, because they're easy investments, they know that they can pay this back. So and they, they want it back, and they loans. want it back too. That's a better bet for them. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I mean, those were those were easy loans. You knew that places like. Uh, uh, Ruth's Chris and um, Shake Shack and all those places would have no problem getting their loans. And places like McDonald's and Burger King are um, eligible. I don't know if they applied, but they're eligible for the loans too. You know, which is crazy that these companies that can you know uh, raise money through Wall Street uh, would would be in the same line as people who basically have no choice but to um, you know get high interest loans, credit cards, that sort of thing to. Uh, keep stay alive but um so there was that problem with it and then on top of that um the way they based it was they based it on payroll entirely um it wasn't based on losses or damages so um all you have to all you had to do and this was obvious in the early details was say that you were um concerned that COVID 19 um would hurt your business that uh, made your business uncertain in the future. It's like, well, who the hell isn't? I mean, even Amazon, which is going gangbusters right now, is probably thinking, well, with you know, future twenty percent employment and a drop in GDT, GDP, who knows what our Christmas is going to be like? They're uncertain about their future, so they need a loan, which is you know nuts. And so, um, you know, and then and then the amount of the loan was based entirely on payroll, so. A company that, say, um, only saw a drop in of revenue of 10% or maybe didn't even see a drop in revenue um, but has a $100,000 uh, payroll per month 
could get a um, $250,000 loan. Meanwhile, a company with a $100,000 payroll a month that's seen an 80% drop in their uh, revenue um, would also be eligible for a $250,000 loan. And both of those, because of the way it's based on whether you uh, uh, use it for your payroll or not, would be eligible for the same forgiveness. So if you use most of it on your um, for your payroll, you're allowed to use some of it on rent and utilities and things like that. You can the government will forgive the loan. But the problem with that is that if a company is uh, already gaining its revenue, wouldn't have to lay anybody off. They have their revenue. They're still making money uh, open during COVID. All that money will be profit for them. It's just straight profit into their pocket. Just goes right into their savings account, right into dividends or whatever. Um, Whereas for someone like me, who's lost 80% of my business, even with that forgiveness, it's not going to make me whole. I'm still going to be losing money. So that's the, I mean, it was, it had just multiple problems from the very beginning. Um, what I had said originally, and I stick by today, is that they should have either uh, made it based on revenue loss. You know, it's like, okay, compare your February 2019 to your February 2020 revenues. Um, how much, pretty much you're down. You can use a multiple of that for uh, your loan amount and how much is going to be forgiven. Um, you know, and base it on that instead. Or... They could have just forced uh, insurance companies to um, pay us based on uh, business loss, right? I mean, insurance companies are used to doing this. They do it in natural disasters all the time. If there's a flood, a hurricane, um, earthquake, whatever, they are very experienced at figuring this stuff out. And then, you know, the insurance companies would have been you know, in danger of going bankrupt because of having to do this for an entire country. But then you bail out the insurance companies. Either way would have been so much better than what they did um, and no more complicated. Um, it just pisses me off. And meanwhile, um, you know, this PPP loan is only going to be a two-month thing. So we're going to be in this exact same position come July. Right. So um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's where we are. Are you able to think about what it might look like when restaurants start opening up? I mean, Eater just had an article that it, there certainly isn't going to be any grand opening situation going on. It's going to be very slow. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've made the same prediction that I was making back in uh, early March, which is that um, – well, actually, I think mid-March. I think once, once I could see um, – where things were going as far as uh, what kind of mitigation strategies would people be taking with social distancing and that. Um, it seemed to me that uh, the most you could really hope for with most places would be something like 50% revenue. Um, you know, there's going to be places that are exceptions. Places with drive throughs are still doing lots of business. I talked to someone who uh, was doing $12,000 a day through their drive through which is, you know, uh, more than – I mean, Maramoli's ever made it a day except for on Cinco de Mayo. So, um, you know, there's there's places, you know, I know that um, uh, Dutch Brothers, you know, has been killing it with their little coffee stands that are all, you know, drive-through. Um, and places that are set up, you know, like a, um, that we're always to go or, you know, these ghost kitchen places. Um, all those places are set up for the future. They're doing well now and so on. 
um, the more you're using a dining room or the more a dining room matters, uh, the more you're going to be hurt. So Mimaramole is a place that's uh, fast casual um, and kind of in between a, uh, a fast food and a um, and uh, you know mid scale dining you know uh, sit down dining restaurant is is going to be a little better off, but um, but the places like uh, you know Little Caesars or whatever or Chipotle they're going to kill. Uh, going forward, and then the places that are going to be the worst off are going to be the places um, that you know kind of have dominated Portland's dining scene for the longest time, which are these uh, you know uh, mid-sized to small um, chef-centered restaurants. Where you know a lot of the restaurants in Portland, you know, it's shoulder to shoulder in the dining room, right? And and it's all about the experience, and you know, it's not it's not cheap, but it's not really expensive. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you can do like just a sushi bar and you can charge $150 a person, you know, you might be able to come out. You mean, I don't, you know, you know, some of these more exclusive places in big cities, you know, they can probably raise their prices however much they want. And the rich people who uh, frequent those aren't going to be hurt much by it because they've got plenty of disposable income. But, um, you know, a lot of these places in Portland, you know, Portland's not a wealthy town. Um, it's, you know, it's not near as wealthy as even Seattle. So, um, you know, people's disposable incomes can be a lot lower when you've got uh, 20 plus um, uh, unemployment. Yeah. yeah. And so um, those places that have been the heart and soul of Portland's dining scene for at least the last 20 years are going to be the places most hurt. And so that, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be um, heartbreaking uh, for those of us who really care about it. It's not just revenue solely. It's logistics, too, on how that's going to work. If you have state or federal, whatever, regulations or even city on, on separation between diners or and or diners and staff, uh, that's going to make things very difficult because you can only yeah. you're only going to be able to I mean, put. From, uh, I mean, that stuff will ultimately all work itself out in the sense of like you know there'll be headaches, but all of us as restaurant all of us as restaurateurs will deal with them. You know, in the same way we deal with you know OLCC regulations or health department regulations or new. Um, you know, issues with a point of sale system or whatever, you know, those are all those day-to-day things that we work out. But ultimately what it means is seeing um, our revenues drop by 50%. And, you know, pe- people don't always understand how much volume matters in a restaurant um, and why, for example, so many restaurants in Portland don't have uh, reservations or why, you know, you're shoulder-to-shoulder with uh you know tables and that sort of thing it's it's because volume matters so much these places that um you know and there's and there's been tons of them in portland's history where they're like slammed from the minute they open to the minute they close those type of places can practically print money you you don't have to um pay good attention to your to your uh, cost of goods sold or you know your labor costs and stuff because um, you get to a certain point in a restaurant where your volume just kind of overtakes everything and each new dollar is all profit. Um, whereas the average restaurant, you know, um, 
might be just making, you know, 5% on gross. So they might be, you know, the, the owner might be at the end of the day taking home, you know, less than they would if they went and got, you know, your average job doing, you know, sales at a phone store or something, you know? Um, and then, and then places like there were months, for example, in Kenny and Zooks where, um, uh, you know, in the slow months where we might lose, you know, $40,000 in a month just because um, you get below a certain level in volume where um, it's just, you know, it's just like burning money. So, um, and it's because you've got such high costs. I mean, not only is startup costs for a restaurant high, but you've got all these other costs. I mean, you've got big spaces, so you've got rent. You've got, um, you know, lots of equipment using lots of utilities. You're using lots of water. So all your, those costs are high. you know, uh, especially uh, sit-down restaurants have lots of high labor, um, especially in, in a place like Oregon where there's no um, uh, credit for uh, tip credit. You know, you have to play minimum wage plus tips. So, um, you know, if you've got you, um, six servers and eight, you know, uh, people in the back of the house or something, you're paying them no matter if it's busy or slow. You can maybe cut some people here and there, but no matter what, you've pretty much got these costs. And so, um, uh, until you reach a certain amount of volume where you're uh, breaking even and you're starting to fill up, um, you really can lose a lot of money. And then once you get to a point where um, it doesn't matter how much busier you get, you're not adding any more costs to you because, you know, the lights are on either way. The uh, gas is on either way. You're paying your rent. Um, you can only have so many uh, people in the kitchen at a time and so on. Then other than uh, what's called your cost of goods sold, you know, you're basically your food costs. Everything else stays the same and everything above that food cost, which is usually around 70 percent, is um, – is just money. It's just so volume matters a ton, and I don't know any um, restaurants that are built on the idea of of breaking even at fifty percent revenue. I mean, you know, usually you break even somewhere closer to like you know seventy uh, percent of your normal or eighty percent of your normal, not right. you know fifty percent of your normal. So it's going to take a lot of creativity to figure out how to even break even with uh, 50% revenue going forward, especially for these mid-scale places. I mean, you know, maybe I can renegotiate my lease, um, figure out how to use less electricity, you know, negotiate with, uh, you know, um, our insurance company and so on, and mostly do takeout and delivery, but, you know, what about these fine dining places? I mean, it, does anybody want to really get takeout from fine dining every night? I mean, yeah, it was well, about the experience of being in a restaurant and having stuff presented to you nicely and having, you know, a server come over to you dressed smartly and suggest a wine. Right. Um, oh, no, there's not. It's not the same thing getting the exact same food that's delicious and taking it home. It's that that right. is not. You know, what I think what gave a lot of the value of whatever you're spending at a nice restaurant was just getting out and taking it home is not the same thing. It's just not. So maybe for some people it is. 
I'm sure it is for some, but I think the experience is getting just out. a matter of uh, if it was just a matter of like regulations saying, okay, well, you can only be half as busy as you are now. Um, it would be one thing. Maybe you can raise the prices enough for mo- for a lot of these places to make it. But you have to keep in mind that a lot of people are going to be out of work, and so their you know their ability to pay higher prices is going to go uh, way down. So it's it's a double edged sword. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I think there'll just be a lot. Of, there'll be a lot of strategies. Um, you know, uh, I think you'll see a lot smaller menus. You know, a lot fewer offerings, so that there's not as much uh, work to do on uh, preparing the food for the menu. Um, you know, I think you'll see a lot fewer uh, uh, front of the house employees. You're just going to have to wait a little bit longer to get your order taken. Um, I think you might see hours narrowed a decent amount. No more of the uh, open between, you know, two and and six sort of thing. I th- you know, it'll be a lot more like Europe, really, where you know the um, wages are higher and um, and the costs for food and stuff are often a lot higher. So you know, you know, you know how that is where you travel a lot. You know, if you're in uh, a lot of countries, um, you know, uh, Spain, Italy, France, etc. You know, they might only be open two hours for lunch and three hours for dinner, and that's it. And every day they're full because they take reservations and they just know how to plan. And you're just going to have to um, reserve a spot way ahead. I think you'll see a lot of mid-scale places probably having to move to a model like that so that they can really plan and, and budget uh, really tightly. Um going forward i wonder if you're going to see a lot more ticketed experiences too so that the so restaurants you know that's a double-edged sword i realize because ticketed experiences can get a little expensive but but that way a restaurant can exactly can know and no shows aren't going to hurt them the same way they do so i don't know i well i think uh i think because no shows will hurt you'll see a lot of things that um you know restaurants have been uh hesitant to do such as well if you don't show up for your reservation you're getting charged half the price or right. uh, you know or something like that i think you'll just see that as part of uh of doing business going forward and um you know customers uh might complain about a little bit but you know i think um under the circumstances uh, they'll end up accepting it. it will just be habit going forward well they'll have to once you once many do it it becomes the norm and someone doesn't stand out as being a difficult restaurant or a soup Nazi by doing something like that. So, right. And, uh, and normally what happens is, you know, it's just like gas prices. I mean, um, you know, uh, the reason why when, you know, oil prices go down, you know, everybody ends up uh, charging you less is because one person does it and then everybody has to compete. Well, going forward, you know, nobody's going to be able to, get away with uh having people just no show for um reservations and so there won't be that ability to uh you know uh compete with the other restaurant by not having um those fees or something everybody will need them um and i mean you know another thing about this of course is that there'll just be less restaurants i mean no matter what we do um you know we're gonna have to accept in our industry you know, hotels will be the same way, but there's just going to be fewer of us around a year from now. Yeah. Um, the market is not going to be able to support the number. Um, my estimate since 
probably mid-March has been that we'll see at least 25% of restaurants close permanently. And I think a lot of that is um, is dependent on, you know, how much support you get from the government, how quickly we get, uh, um, you know, the various uh, schemes to open up the, the um, economy a little bit. Um, you know, the, the ability to do them, like the tracing and the tracking and the um, uh, vaccine or treatments or whatever, you know, certainly that stuff matters, but we're not going to see a big difference for at least a year or two. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think this, this sounds blasphemous to say, but, you know, it, it's not a secret that for many years, a lot of people in the industry, people who own restaurants and others who said there are just... A lot, there's, there are too many restaurants for the population in Portland. So maybe it's going to, you know, I, I don't think as a diner, 25% fewer restaurants, it sucks on a personal level for every restaurant owner, every chef, every employee at those restaurants. That sucks. But as a diner, we're still going to have, if you, if you have enough income to go out, we're still going to have enough choices in Portland to not be at a loss. Choices will be fine. The, uh, I think the thing that, you know, on a, if you're an economist looking at it from like, you know, uh, you know, five miles up or whatever, um, you know, long term, it looks like a good thing. But I think as a, as a food geek or a food nerd, you know, in Portland, um, the big problem is uh, what restaurants disappear uh, isn't based on merit of their cooking, right? right? It's, it's based on, um, a bunch of business factors that may have nothing to do with quality of food or experience. So you may see a lot of your favorite restaurants um, that were favorites because uh, they put um, quality ahead of profit um, that end up disappearing. You know, and and you might see a lot more. Um, you know, I mean, Portland's been kind of uh, protected in the, from corporate chains for a long time. It wasn't uh, considered a uh, big market, so a lot of them didn't move in here. There's a lot of um, uh, preventative measures as far as zoning and stuff that kept them from moving in. Um, but, I mean, I think you'll see that uh, a lot of the uh, chains that are set up for the, uh, for the new restaurant economy – um, might end up taking a lot of that market share from, you know, these uh, cool, hip uh, local restaurants that were doing interesting food. Um, and, I mean, we're already seeing some of that. I mean, you have um, Shake Shack moving into Portland even during this uh, right. uh, COVID-19. So, I mean, you know, that's that's the bad part is that, um, you know, it, it is true that, uh, that there's been a lot of restaurants for the number of people and a lot of them weren't really making that much money because there was so much competition. And, you know, and 10 years ago, Zappa Pizza might have survived just by the fact that uh, it would have stood out more and so on. But, um, but the problem is that when those 25% or more restaurants close, a lot of them are going to be the very best restaurants. Right. Um, and so that's the sad part. That is very sad. So, um, one, we, we've been on longer than I wanted to keep you on because I know you have, uh, this is your day off. 
I didn't want this to take you, I didn't want to take you away from your day off too long, and we generally have a, an hour, forty-five minute to an hour long podcast. They've been shorter lately, but before we go, how is how are prospects for me, Marimole? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think probably going forward, the most likely thing is that um, I try to get it into a place where it's sustainable. And then I kind of just uh, leave it to my employees to uh, run and hopefully just uh, break even and they can pay themselves. And, you know, I go off and get a job uh, where I can, you know, help my wife pay our mortgage. And maybe if I have some extra money, uh, throw it in Mole's way to make sure it doesn't go out of business. Um, I think that's probably the most likely thing going forward. Well, I think you um, but, might have a you could have a career consulting with restaurants because just listening to you the last uh, for the last few minutes, you can hear that you have a great business mind, despite the fact that you just lost four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I had I had actually consulted on restaurants before and uh, helped them. There was one in Dallas that uh, ended up getting Restaurant of the Year that I consulted on. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know if anybody's going to have that sort of disposable income going forward uh, to be able to uh, spend on the likes of me. But um, well, you never. Know, you never know. Well, here's the computer programming. Here's the thing I've learned, and yes, you can do that, and that's a good industry. But here's the thing I've learned is that you can't, yes, I think you've done some interesting and very cogent speculation as to what may or may not happen, but it's very, when times are tough, it's much easier to see the disaster scenario than it is to see the great things that could happen that are serendipitous that you don't know might be coming down the pike. So um, right now it's a tough time because... Yes, we're hopeful that some of those things will be in places for business, the place for businesses to survive and then get out of it. But um, one never knows what's happening down the road that could be positive. Well, I, think, I think we will. I think we will get through it. I mean, even if um, even if the worst case scenario, which is that uh, uh, the coronavirus becomes endemic, we never get a uh, a vaccine for it, and we just kind of have to learn to social distance for the rest of our lives or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, worst case scenario like that. I mean, we'll change our, how our economy is, um, organized, but I don't know that, uh, you know, but we'll still come through it. I think it'll just, it just, it's a huge disruption though. You know, you've, uh, you know, you're, you know, I look at it as probably a year or two, um, of, of a depressed hospitality um, economy with, you know, maybe five years plus to get back to where uh, we were pre-COVID. But I mean, um, you know, even in the worst case scenario, it's it's a reordering of how things are done, but things will still be done. It's just that disruption, you know, just like anything, um, you know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, the invention of the digital camera, you know, all those people who ended up, you know, losing their asses at Kodak or whatever, I mean, that hurt a lot. Eventually, uh, you know, on the grander scale, we come through it. But there's a lot of people who suffer in the process. And I think that's what we're dealing with here is, uh, you know, ultimately, um, we'll get through this. But there's going to be a lot of people who, um, 
you know, are going to be losing their jobs and be suffering in the process. Right. And so that's what we need to worry about. And the, and the prospects aren't there. And you make a good point. I mean, look at the, um, and this is no consolation, but look at the music industry. I mean, that was a big shakeup. My old industry advertising changed drastically. You know, everybody's a graphic designer now and everybody's a copywriter. So um, it's happened to a lot of industries. It's just this one is a wonderful, you know, uh, industry that consumers enjoy so much, and it's one of the joys of life. So well, there's just so many at, at once too. It's it's just such a gigantic shock to the entire economy because it's you know it's hotels, it's airlines, it's you know oil, it's restaurants. You know, yeah. it, it's just so much is hammered all at once that um, you know it's going to be horrific um but i i do believe we'll get through it it's just going to take um you know a lot of effort of uh of changing how we think about um you know uh, what we do on a day-to-day basis yeah i think we're going to see some forced policies that perhaps people were fighting for a long time but we'll see but so nick i really appreciate your uh taking the time you've always been uh extremely open more so than anybody, I think, that I know. Extremely open about uh, details about what you're doing and very humble. And uh, I think you're one of the nicest guys out there. And anybody in the industry, uh, especially in Portland, respects you. And, um, God, we hope me and Marimola, we'd much rather see you in the restaurant business than a computer programmer. There are a lot of those out there. So, well, thank you. So let's hope you make it, and um, you know I'll hope to meet up with you soon for a bite to eat somewhere. We haven't done that in a while. Yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk to our mass, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody's got it. So anyway, thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. So uh, just to be, if anybody's got gotten through the whole podcast, and we hope they have. So your restaurant is located where? Uh, 32 Northwest 5th. That's uh, Northwest 5th and Cooch in Chinatown. But you can uh, go to our website, mmmtacospdx.com, and uh, order from there if you'd like. Right, and I will I will endorse that fully because your food is great, and uh, it's uh, as was well Zappa Pizza. That was a re- you know that was much like my post corner pizza, Greek pizza with Mexican flavors. Um, it was sad to see that not work. But me, Miramole, just so people know, you have done a lot of research in Mexico. You have some great friends in Mexico in the industry. And so you didn't just open up and say, let's do this. And you've got, uh, you've got some delicious guisados and the food at me, Miramole is, is fantastic. Mole. Me, Miramole. So I'm terrible at pronouncing things. So um, I didn't even have. I had the Frank Zappa pronunciation of Zappa Zappa Pizza, though. So yeah, so many people were saying Zappa Pizza that I started saying Zappa Pizza. It was pissing me off. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny when you it's when when I you know my children are young. I loved when they mispronounced things because it meant they were reading. And not hearing it on TV. So, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to give myself credit for that. But for whatever reason, I was a big Frank Zappa fan. So uh, I know there was only one P in Zappa. But uh, still, that's what I've said his name a lot over the years. So anyway, thanks very much. And we will see you soon. And are you, you're, doing, you're obviously doing takeout now. Yep. 
get all the delivery services going and all that sort of thing. Do you have your and, own uh, delivery service going or are you using others? Because that's an issue uh, now, right? We're using others for now. Um, we may in the future uh, try to do our own delivery. We do delivery for things like we do these heat and serve meals, uh, you know, like enchiladas and tamales, um, where we will deliver if you uh, order over uh, $50 worth. And then we're also doing these uh, regional um meals once a week it's like a sunday dinner sort of thing where you can get them for like two four or six people and um each week it changes and then going forward we haven't um uh, announced this yet and i don't know when this podcast will go so we might have announced it by the time the podcast goes on but uh, we're planning on doing these uh tuesday um these taco tuesday kits too where it's kind of like the uh OG Tex-Mex uh, crispy tacos where we'll give you, uh, you know, your um, seasoned ground beef, your uh, yellow cheese, lettuce, onions, tomatoes, sour cream, and then house-made crispy corn shells where you can kind of build your own taco dinner night too. So I've got a bunch of stuff going. Very nice. We need one of those. You remember the old bank tubes where you went to the – drive-in uh slot oh, the pneumatic tubes yeah i mean i need pneumatic tubes to, to deliver out to manzanita because uh well, you know like uh, elon musk i think wants to create pneumatic tubes instead of uh, subway systems where you just like suck people in a big tube like all the way down california so <laughs> that, <laughs> maybe we can get one of those from portland to cannon beach or something yeah i don't think cannon beach wants that so um <laughs> probably not yeah side them yeah and yeah, that's true. Seaside, but at any rate, we have actually a couple of good options out here for takeout. I obviously get jealous looking, and I can't go in. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna jump in this week for a little prescription run, but and sneak something in. I know I will. But um, uh, it's really frowned upon out here, by the way. Really frowned upon. Uh, I've noticed. Uh, yeah. You guys got like police blocking the uh, the beaches and stuff out there. Yeah, and we and I have militant neighbors too. So um, <laughs> well, we've got those here too. Yeah, I made, bit, I made a big. I made a big people for having a um, a backyard party that they're murderers. So yeah, no, I I actually and this neighbor we've made our peace, but a few things have happened with my neighbors. One was really kind of really you're going to do that, but the <laughs> my really nice neighbor across the street. So in Manzanita, they weren't allowing second homeowners to come out here. And so the, oh, by, yeah. by allowing, they just originally said you can't come. And then someone must have, just like they did with Trump, you know, called attention to the mayor. You can't tell people not to do it. That's not you, – you got no law. So at any rate, so I, I go into Portland at the end of March because my prescriptions were going to take three weeks to get out here. So I thought, okay – I got cabin fever. I'll just go to the drive-thru at Walgreens. And then while I was there, I thought, okay, let me check out Zupan's because I'd like to go to Zupan's. And there was nobody there at 7 o'clock. It was great. I could go in and do my shopping, and I posted onto Instagram. And my neighbor wrote me a scathing text the next morning, like, I can't even come to my house, and you are jumping into Portland, you know, lollygagging over to Zupan's. So anyway, 
all you know things he are very different. Said, that's right suck it bitches yeah no well no he's a he's a really nice guy but it's interesting that's what this this is doing to people they're getting oh, a know. little ornery and i understood why i would have been kind of pissed off too and i knew when i posted to instagram i thought uh oh i'm gonna hear about this from somebody <laughs> so anyway well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to get that little story out. But my neighbor and I are friends, and as a matter of fact, I encouraged him. If you've been in Portland for a month, we're can... friends until he listens to us. So <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think he listens. But but <laughs> no, he's fine. But I encourage them to come out because if you've been if you've been isolated for fourteen days in Portland, that's really not a lot. And I'm sure I can get people to call me on this, but. It's not, you're isolating enough to come out and use your home and not go anywhere out here. You're well, not- it's, it's ridiculous anyway. I mean, um, you know, I mean, for one thing, Oregon is already past the peak, right? I mean, we can, um, our, our mitigation has worked. And, you know, it would be reasonable to let up a little bit on that mitigation and see if, you know, we can keep... Um, uh, things going down as far as new cases and so on. Right. But I mean, um, you also have the problem of, uh, it's a bit like a pressure cooker. You know, if you keep people in their houses and it's nice weather, it's like you keep, you know, all this pressure on them. You have to stay home. You have to stay home. You can't do anything. You can't do anything. Instead of giving them a safe release valve and, you know, going to the beach is relatively safe as long as you're not sharing public bathrooms or sharing public tables or yeah, but, those sorts of things. But, Nick, you know, that's the problem. Is when Before they told people not to come, the parking lots at the parks were packed, which meant that people were in the bathrooms. I would, I would do stuff like, uh, you know, limit so that you can only have every other space be used. Or I mean, there's a bunch of things they could do. But, I mean, once you're on the beach, I mean, it's a frickin' beach. It's just like the same thing with the parks. I mean, if you're walking through the park or, you know, I see all these people like go, why do you want to kill your neighbor because, you know, a family of four goes has a picnic at the beach or at the park. It's like, dude, it's a family. They're isolated together. You know, they're going to be in each other's space anyway using the same bathroom. It does not matter if they go and sit on grass together and have a snack. Um, And it's the same thing with the beach. I mean, you know, Washington has made it so that you can't go fishing. It's like, it's, yeah, it's that, insane. It's that absolutely sounds, insane. That sounds pretty crazy, but I will never, ever agree with you that everybody should be able to come to the beach. I'm going to tell everybody that the virus spreads in sand. It's all over the beach. Don't come out. No, I, I really like yeah, it. that's because it's your backyard and it's like. Exactly. Uh, I love it with nobody here. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but but yes, I do. But, but then there's the other thing that they I've read and I don't know. I should come out to your house and we'll set up a roadside uh, fish and chips stand, and people can just come and we'll just put the fish and chips in their uh, in their window or something. There's there is a really good one in the Halem that's open that they've decided they've never been open at this time of year. Fish and chips food cart, they're open. So oh, nice. Yeah, that's been that's been nice. And believe me, if you want to come and serve tacos from outside of my house, and my commission is a few tacos, <laughs> you're in, baby. Do it okay. soon. All right, thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. Yep. All right, Sorry. have a good night. Bye. Bye. This has been Right at the Fork with your host Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm Court Johnson. 
This podcast is supported by Zupan's Markets, the Toro Bravo Inc. Restaurant Group, and Ringside Steakhouse. You can support the Toro Bravo Inc. Restaurant Group by ordering takeout at some of their locations or by simply purchasing a gift card to use later. You can find out which restaurants are open for to-go orders and get those gift cards at torobravoinc.com. Ringside Steakhouse, a Portland institution for over 75 years, is looking forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, you can purchase gift cards on their website where they're now offering bonus gift cards. For example, if you purchase a $300 e-gift card, you'll receive a $50 bonus dining gift card. And with the purchase of a $500 e-gift card, you'll get a $100 bonus dining card. You can get full details at ringsidesteakhouse.com. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right at the Fork.